Welcome everybody to Open Pod Pod. I'm Amanda Buena de Mosquita. I'm a systemic psychotherapist and open dialogue practitioner, and I'm passionate about us bringing new ways of learning and talking and dialogue to each other. And that's the purpose of this. Hello, folks. Welcome to Open Pod Pod. My name is Billy Hardy, and I'm also a systemic psychotherapist and have been interested in working with the ideas of open dialogue for many years now. So it's a great pleasure for me to share some ideas with Amanda on these pods and then see where it takes us. The idea behind these is to create dialogue. We're hoping that the people listening to us will create a reflection on what we're speaking about and hence create more dialogue and a polyphony of voices. It's funny, isn't it, though, when we're thinking and we're talking about open dialogue, the fact is that we've all, the three of us, have done several of these now, so it's automatically more comfortable. We don't go overwhelmed by the technology. No, and I wonder when families who see people, the same people, when we think about psychological continuity, also then stop getting overwhelmed by the number of people walking through their house or their door because it becomes familiar. I've been thinking, i tell you what's really bothering me at the moment. The thing that is really grating at me, and I'm sure you'll correct me when I'm wrong, is the word mental. Mental? Mental. It's everywhere. Yeah. There's mental illness, mental health, what we need to do about children's mental health, mental, mental, mental. Even yeah. rethink mental, even like the charity which I'm talking to, rethink mental, I'm like thinking, I've got a problem here because I actually – hate the word mental it's derogatory and it's at to me the root of this work that I want to do is that if someone is having a totally rational response to their sort of irrational and hateful situations or environment or context whatever words you want to use does that make them mental no I mean it's not a good word really because of the saturation of mental health discourse Everybody who uses it thinks they know what it means. But, but like all good psychopathological language, it, it, it has a dark side. Mm. And uh, some of it should be avoided. I mean, like you, I mean, you, you don't like the word mental. I don't like the phrase mental health. Because mm. the idea of, I hear people talking in all different contexts when they say, well, I, I have mental health. And I, I think, what the hell are they talking about? I says, do you, do you mean I have a mental illness? You, you can't have mental health as a problem. You, you can then go on to, then you have to define everything you see. What do you mean by mental? So then you have to deconstruct that. And before you know it, you're in psychiatry land. Because that's actually what they're talking about. And then that comes with its own problems. Mm. I think. But it does it does get gets bandied around. I mean, to the point where, although it sounds flippant, I remember the last time I went to the hairdresser and they went, your hair's really a bit schizophrenic, isn't it? I was like, what? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like even my hair's got a diagnosis. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Well, you see, it's the fluidity of language, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's not good sometimes. It's not good. And, I, do you know, I, when I think about language, I think the fact is, I think, all right, whilst we're talking about Amanda's pet hates, I hate small talk. I mean, we've touched on that together before, Billy. It's 
I remember always joking when I was younger about being a hairdresser. I'd go, I'd be a terrible hairdresser because I'd stand there and people would want to tell me about their holidays and I'd feel like to just be quiet. I believe you. Don't get the pictures out of your children. I fully trust you have them. I don't want to see them. Yeah. yeah. I'm a horrible woman. No, I think <laughs> it's a common thing though because when, when you get to know that language or talking or conversation is precious and valuable, then the moments where it's just a thing mm. it's in the hairdressers, it's a different sort of talk. And it, I think it's useful to have those contacts because I did a little project a while ago and it's to do with a hairdresser. So my uh, sister-in-law's a hairdresser and at the time she had a salon and she said to me, have you heard about the suicides? And I said, no. Well, everyone's talking about them in the salon. And I was thinking, well, who's everyone in the salon? Have all the psychiatrists or mental health professionals gone to gone to her for a hairdo, you know? And she said, no, it was, it's the relatives. It's the relatives of people who've taken their life. Now, this was a few years ago when it was a huge spike of suicides of young people in Bridgend. I, You know, I noted it and I said, no, I haven't heard. And then about a week later, I bumped into someone else who said, someone different, but it was the same thing. Have you heard about all the suicides? I said, no, as if I would know, as if I'm a sort of suicide watcher person. And so they told me. And it became very interesting because I then I then did a little project called The Value of Community Gossip. And I did a presentation at a conference. This was probably 2014 or something. And I said, I want, I want to present a new methodology. It's called the method of community gossip. And of course, amongst academics, there, there was, oh, oh this, is, this, is, this is interesting, you know. But simply what it was, was, was being a recipient of conversations that people were having in different places. Mm. And then I extended that, because I know that last time we touched on domestic violence, I extended that to become curious about what happens in a South Wales context in relation to violence. And then I, I bought the local newspaper, which is a local rag, and I bought it in a two-week span when the rugby internationals were on. And then things like, and it was just interesting because they do a lot of things like, look who's in court today. You know, most of the people were in court for domestic violence as perpetrators. Or there was a headline, I remember, I've still got all the stuff. A young bloke killed his ex-girlfriend in broad daylight in Cardiff. And I, I, I thought, this is bonkers. There's an epidemic of this stuff. And so for about three years, I collected community gossip on that. So community gossip is knowing someone who's working in the community, doing stuff, able to pass or likely to pass information to you, not, not needing to pass. But I guess there's a need to speak it out. And also how it's recorded in, in a public domain. For example, with a newspaper. It's just unbelievable. I mean, we're talking statistically. I was then looking at this stuff and I, I got really, really worried for the whole safety of people in South Wales. I'll give you another example. A young girl who used to go to school with my daughter, she was one of a twin and her body was found by the side of the motorway. 
Um, it's just shocking. Another another girl was strangled by her boyfriend, and he took her body to the police station. I mean, this is this is in a sleepy little town here. It was like one of those bad American horror movies where you say, "Oh, that would never happen," but it almost felt to me like it was happening. And so, all of those, the things about language, the things about talking and having conversation, is listening out for, for bits that are. I think really, really important because mm. mm. small talk can lead to big talk. Mm. My sister-in-law's offering me small talk. Have you heard about? Then it led to big talk. I think it it can work both ways. I think Billy. I think it's interesting about small talk leading to big talk because I think it can also have the direct opposite effect where small talk remains small and mm. doesn't leave room for big talk. And and so I, I hear what you're saying about noticing talk that's important or could be important in a community yeah. to lead to important conversations that are difficult to have. And But I also think that some topics, especially when the culture and context changes so rapidly, I think that some elements frequently, no, I'm being polite, I think there are extensive areas of freedom of speech that are feeling progressively more curtailed, actually. Well, yeah, the whole thing has gone a bit over the top in many ways, you know. If we think of people who, if if your repertoire is only about small talk in an open dialogue context, then you might just find yourself only ever talking about the weather. Yeah, yeah. Rather than the relationships. Yeah. And I think that's that's the bit of the small talk that I struggle with. I can't do the blah, blah. I can do it for short enough time to be polite. And then I find I extrapolate myself and go home. And it's not it's not a snobbery thing. I mean, I'm genuinely just rather sit on my own or, yeah. or read a book or do something for myself. I think I've got to an age where I can make a choice. But it does. I think it's quite difficult. It makes, I've been thinking a lot about how open is open. How open is open dialogue? How how difficult it is to approach difficult topics, even with our families or people that we've known for a long time, or maybe especially with them. Maybe that's the whole point of having a therapist. I don't know. Well, which I guess leads to that. I think it's a beautiful question, and it's, it's a question that I would use when I'm noticing that maybe we're just talking about the weather or, or the holidays coming up or whatever it may be in someone's life that's it's everyday living, which is important. But it raises the question in me, this is very interesting, but if we were talking about something else, what would it be? Or if we weren't talking about this, what do you think we'd be talking about? When you're engaged in a relationship, that's about relationship talking. You don't want to waste too much time talking about the weather. I know we're back to the space in between, and we've discussed that before. And I never really grasped it when you tried to teach it to me. Mm. I do now. When when we'd have a couple in the room and we were talking about, and you'd say, it's about the space between them. It's not even about the words they're saying. It's about the words they're not saying. It's the yeah. space in the middle. Yeah. And it's then finding words to discuss the things that are so difficult. And it's like finding a new language. And all the, although it's not an unfamiliar language, the space in the middle or the space between 
there resides a place, if you like, that doesn't have a form of language to it. Maybe because it's too frightening or it's too painful or it's too difficult. So the practitioner's position is to scaffold that enough to create the possibility of having that conversation. You know, so if I was working with someone in an open dialogue context, yes, I would I might do some small talk. But I would also I would also try and balance it up with conversations, hopefully. I mean, and I think maybe I should rephrase that. If you're going back to your client and you're saying, What's the most important thing that we need to speak about today? If you can stick to that agenda, then it's going to make a a difference to the quality of the conversation for everybody. And do you think it's um, a practitioner's job to expose, I think might be the right word, their own feeling or resonance when they feel that something's not being said? Well, I think I think there's a responsibility if the practitioner is chinned with themselves to speak about their emotional responses to what's being said in a way that remains the property of the person who's speaking about it. Hmm. You know, because we can all say, when we hear something that's sad, um, there are ways of expressing our responses to our sadness or a happiness or some other emotional content of, of words. But, um, you know, saying to someone, you know, when you said that, I came over as feeling a great sense of sadness for you or for the person you're talking about. Mm. And, then you, and then you can qualify that by maybe saying, do you, think that was, do you think that was close to a useful response for you? Or was there something else you may want to add to it? Mm. And I think what's interesting about this is that people learning about open dialogue don't necessarily understand or connect at the beginning the reason why use of self is so important and genogram work is so important because it's important to know in those moments whether that feeling of being sad is from one's own history and one's own narrative or not and you don't know that without and even if it is, that's fine, but it's about knowing it or, or seeing it, knowing what's yours and what's in the room, if you see what I mean, and knowing which bits you could potentially be leaving at the door because they're your story. And it's that, I mean, when we're, if you're in the domain of thinking about use of self, it's then it's not just the use of self, it's, it's knowing what's yours, it's knowing what to leave at the door. Uh, mm because it quickly becomes your therapy role in the clients. Correct, yeah. And and also, I think, when we say knowing what to leave at the door, knowing that that is an ever-changing process in itself, and that's why constantly re-reflecting and revisiting, reflecting, or re-having intervision, et cetera, it's not something that you write, yep, got it, let's go, because, it, it, because our own history becomes unveiled to us. It's like an onion skin of... Sure. Pain, <laughs> emotional pain, but revelation, isn't it, of seeing it all and then mm, realizing there's another bit. I think it's really difficult, you know, not just in, in I, I'm not calling it mental health, I'm going to call it in emotional response yeah. world, because I think that 
in the physical health world as well, that medics are also ill-equipped to deal with real talk. Yeah. I don't think it's an ex- I don't th- I think it's across the board. Well, you know, my, my recent experience myself in a medical context is you have to wade through a lot of the veneer first with, with professionals. There's a lot of it before you get to the person. I met someone the other day. She had that different accent. And I said, uh, where is your accent from? And she said, I'm Russian. I said, well, that's really interesting. Where, where in Russia are you from? She said, Latvia. I said, I thought Latvia was a Baltic state and not, oh, well, it used to be part of Russia. You know, and then we had a conversation about history. And before we knew it, she was telling me about her grandparents. And then she was telling me about the pale. And then she was telling me about the Jewish experience. And then she was telling me how she got to the UK. And all of that. It was a wonderful introduction to someone I'd never met before. And this is a fact that I, it's written factually, but I, I didn't know it, was that Latvia is one of the European countries that seems to have the tallest women. Really? Because she was, she was about six foot two, and she said, yes, most Latvians are tall. And I said, that's why I knew that. <laughs> it was just, it's just a fact that is, at one level it's nonsense and it's small talk, but at another level, you know, noticing that and even just talking about it makes a connection with the person. And when I, I only spoke to her for about 10 minutes. And then when we left, when, when I left her room, she said, oh, it's been lovely to meet you and talk with you. But what did we exchange, you know? I think we were exchanging curiosity. I think you were exchanging as well, being, being human. Yeah. I think that sometimes the small talk almost laminates that being human and connecting with each other because we have lost our village and just people knowing and being in community and living in community, not all of us. And this, this young woman, I know that she was married and I know that she's got a child and I know that she's from a village in Dorset called Wareham. And Wareham's a lovely village. Uh, and one of the things about Wareham is it's got one of those old cinemas in it mm. where, where the ticket pops out the brass plate. On the oh, ground. I love those. And it's the only one in the UK that's fully operational. She then said to me, because she became curious, she said, what's your name? And I said, William Hardy. And she said, oh, my God. She said, I live in Hardy country. Because <laughs> Thomas Hardy is... Big deal in Dorset, you know. And I and I told her the story of me going to a hotel in Wareham. And when I said my name was William Hardy, people were saying, "I, you, no, you're taking you're taking a mic," because mm. the, the hotel was called the Thomas Hardy Hotel. <laughs> and it was just that little moment of connection, you know. I said to Fiona, "Today doesn't feel as flowy as normal." And she said, yeah, it doesn't. And she, you agreed with me. And I wondered what you felt to get well, back I think, to the topic. Yeah, and yeah, if probably. Uh, it, it doesn't feel like other uh, moments that we've had. But yeah. maybe maybe what's happened 
just as I think about this sort of style of talk, it's almost like a stock take. Mm. Where are we? What's the context now? What's happening? Mm. And talking about, you know, you folks talking about your organisations and what's happening in them. Um, Mm. And I think that's really useful. Because maybe the next one then will reflect what we've done before. Mm. Or maybe there is something in this that then triggers the next ideas, the next sort of focus that we need to think about. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's, I think the truth is, is that it can be like that. Well, it's often like that in the, in the work, you know, as a therapist, there are sessions that are very flowy and feel good. And I think yeah. Ooh, that was good. And there are other sessions that feel sticky And I think it's going to be like that with open dialogue as well. When people who are very used to going in and being solution focused and medical model and we're doing this and tick listy are going to find the stickiness, new territory. Yeah. Mm. And you see, when you hit stickiness and then you hit competency, when you reflect on yourself, say, oh, I can't do this. I'll go, I'll I'll revert back to what I did before because it makes me feel better. Whereas, you know, the stickiness is usually a, it's a sign of something. Yeah. That's, that's it's always a sign to go back to what you're used to doing because that's it's a bit defeatist and a bit pessimistic. But this, it, it, it is actually, it's making me smile now to think that we're actually doing one of our pods, feeling the stickiness within the pod yeah. as such, yes. discussing it. Yes. And recognizing it as part of the process. Yeah. And sitting within it. Yeah. And I think it and in my and in me there's that, but what if it isn't a good pod? You know, what's gonna happen? Do I have to leave every pod feeling it was a good pod? Does one have to leave yeah. every family open dialogue session feeling it was a good session? And what happens when you don't? And what happens if I can use this as a metaphor, what happens when you get treacle between your toes? Have you ever got treacle between your toes? No, but I was just thinking about it. You know, what's the most irritating <laughs> thing that would happen? And what would I do about it, you know? <laughs> I mean, that was such a bizarre example. <laughs> no, but, but, but I can, I've already thought of a solution to it. What are you doing? I, I'd get Winnie the Pooh to come and lick my feet. <laughs> <laughs> He'd love it. I know. Well, I think I'm done, folks. I think we're done. We are, aren't we? Mm. And that's it for this episode of Open Pod Pod. Join us for the next episode.